Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Hey, Joey, we are in a new series, and um, we're in Talking Cup for Time. I know we've got a lot to cover today, so let's get started. Why don't you give us uh, the recap from your Sunday sermon, launching this new series, Foundations? Yeah, okay, cool. New series, Foundations, Building a Kingdom Life. Uh, this first sermon, we're, we're taking 25 weeks to go through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's story of Jesus's life. And um, <clears throat> basically, this week was a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I kind of described it as, you know, you're, getting, you're going on a hike, and before you actually go on the hike, the guide stops you and says, all right, hey, there's some things you need to pay attention to. There's some stuff you need to know before you go out on this thing. And when you get back, here's what you will have experienced, you know, all that. So that was kind of the framework for how we approach the Sermon on the Mount. The basic point, um, not just, you know, what we needed to know going into it, but what we need to pay attention to while we're reading the sermon is that the, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the wise growth and whole person righteousness uh, that results in reward both now and forever. And so the the point there is we're we're growing in righteousness in a integrated whole person righteousness, not a, you know, just doing the right things but for the wrong reasons or just externally. It's it's about internal motivation and external behavior coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and that doing so actually generates. Uh, reward, and by reward, I mean it, it. This is how we experience communion with God and our own flourishing, our own goodness, our own happiness. To use kind of a cavalier word for it, our own happiness in relationship with God. So that's the reward. The natural outcome of whole person righteousness is growing happiness in our relationship with God. That we experience now, but it's a, a foretaste of the full flourishing we'll experience in the future, in the future kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven. So whole, uh, wise growth and whole person righteousness resulting in reward now and forever. Uh, that was the point of the sermon. But as we read the sermon together and as we apply it together and as we learn it together, we're following not just the sermon, but the one who preached the sermon. We're following Jesus and his example of living out this sermon uh, in his own life and death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, all right, Joey. So is there anything that you needed to cut from your sermon because of time? Yeah. I mean, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to explain the, the sort of flavor of the teaching that it's this um, melding um, of both the Jewish wisdom tradition uh, that is distinctly Jewish, but also the influence of the Greek virtue tradition that has sort of uh, it influenced Hellenized the uh, Judaism at the time, and so the these two emphases coming together of flourishing is only found in relationship with God. That's the Jewish wisdom tradition, uh, but the growth in integrated whole person uh, virtue, the Greeks would say, righteousness, the Hebrews would say, is the way that flourishing is experienced. These two things come together. Um, <clears throat> what I had to cut, I, I just had to cut a ton of stuff that is fascinating to me. I don't know if it's super interesting to others. So, uh, But it's about the, the history of how the Sermon on the Mount has been read and interpreted throughout church history. Uh, there are more sermons preached, more books written, more words about the Sermon on the Mount than any other part of scripture. 
Mm. Um, as, you know, if, and if you read it, you can see why. It's like all the stuff you know that you've just sort of heard of biblical phrasing or words or, you know, that's, it's all, it's almost all of it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It, it, so it's phenomenal. So um, what I, what I cut was kind of a walk through the, the ways the sermon has been read differently. One book that I was reading preparing for this series went through 19 different theological frameworks people bring to the Sermon on the Mount when they read it, different mm-hmm. ways of thinking about what Jesus is saying, what he's doing and how to apply it and all of that. So it, it, the, the early church, the earliest, um, <clears throat> the earliest centuries, the church read the Sermon on the Mount as a discipleship manual, uh, which is the way I'm taking it. It's like they're saying, hey, this is what uh, a life of following Jesus looks like. This is a straight up discipleship manual. Uh, but then you give it 600, 700 years and early Catholicism, as it was starting to form into a, a priestly class with uh, especially monks and those that were trying to live a more separated life, um, they started reading the Sermon on the Mount as just instructions for those living that higher life, like monks and hermits, okay? So monks and hermits had to follow the Sermon on the Mount, but it doesn't apply to ordinary Christians, mm. okay? Um, and then later Catholics tried to pull it back down into the realm of ordinary Christians and said, no, you do have to live this out, but this is the, this is the way you have to live in order for God to accept you into heaven. So beginning to say, uh, this is how you earn your salvation, or at least these are the works that merit the grace that God gives you that then gets you uh, into heaven. Obviously not something we would agree with. Um, So because Catholicism had split the application of the Sermon on the Mount into a priestly class and sort of the lay class, uh, Luther and the reformers really reacted against that view. And they swung probably a little too far in the other direction. They started reading the sermon as, uh, as a new law, as Jesus sort of recapitulating the Old Testament law, but making it even harder. And so Luther, in the way he always uh, looked at the law, was the law is there to show you that you can't obey and you need Jesus. And there's a okay. kernel of truth to that. Um, so he read the Sermon on the Mount as a list of impossible commands. You cannot follow them. You can't obey them. Sure. They only exist to show you that you need Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you should read them and feel bad about yourself and go looking for grace. Uh, other mm-hmm. reformers softened that a little bit and said, well, it, actually, it is possible for ordinary Christians to keep the commands in the Sermon on the Mount, but only after they've been regenerated and have received grace from the Spirit, uh, grace in which to apply. And, and I think that's a good uh, correction. If, it, if, as I take it, it's a discipleship manual for life, well, you do need grace in order to live out this life. Yeah. Now, at the same time as Luther and the other reformers, there was another group, Anabaptists. This is where we get our modern-day Amish and Mennonites. Anabaptists were reading the sermon in a very literalistic and radical way and saying every command applies literally and specifically, no exceptions, right? So when it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, don't take oaths, they're like, no, you don't sign contracts, you don't make promises, you don't take oaths, none of that. You just try, you just say yes, and yes means yes, right? Um, or the admonition, you know, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek, that um, means a very specific nonviolence is the only way to live out the sermon. So they read the sermon in such a way as to really overly apply it, overly literalistically, and kind of used it as a way to condemn most of the behavior that God actually seems to bless in the Old Testament. Um, The behavior of soldiers and kings defending and and the behavior of 
of sacred oaths before God and things like that. And this is all happening at the same time as Luther and the other reformers. So there was a secondary reaction within the Protestant Reformation against this reading of it. Uh, Luther, you can see him sort of shifting his view on it, where he went away from the view that um, it's an impossible command that no one can keep and said, well, maybe there's parts of it that you're supposed to obey as an individual Christian, but then there's parts of it that you don't need to worry about obeying once you're in a specific societal, uh, societally, societally uh, mandated position, like king, ruler, soldier. So the admonition towards nonviolence is for the normal Christian in normal life, but if you're a soldier, then it no longer applies. Mm. And he's been, I think, rightly criticized because just as the Catholics split the sermon between yeah. the, you know, the, the clergy and the laity, well, he took each person and cut them in half and said, well, when you're at home, you need to obey it, but when you're at work, you don't need to, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a soldier or something like that. So little too, yeah, anyway, a little too split. Now, once we get into modern readings uh, of the sermon, uh, especially more progressive theologians will read the Sermon on the Mount as epitomizing Christianity as a whole that this is what Christianity looks like. This is what it means to uh, be a Christian, or this is how you know you're a Christian. Um, and they take just the Sermon on the Mount and they say, this is the gospel. Living this way is the good news. And they separate or, or bifurcate the Sermon on the Mount from not only the four other big blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel, but also from the, the crucifixion and the resurrection itself. When you read the Sermon on the Mount as simply the epitome of what it mean, what the gospel is, then you really don't have an answer for the question, well, then why did the guy who taught this have to die? Right? Well, that was an unfortunate accident, or you have to kind of explain it away. And so you say, just the Sermon on the Mount, this is how you live. And then it's a sort of applied uh, top down to societies as a whole, saying this is how everybody needs to figure out how to live. Now, on the flip side, more modern conservative readings of the sermons tend to still em emphasize the Lutheran um, impossible command view saying like, hey, you can't live up to this. Um, all, the only reason this is here is to show you that you need grace. Um, and so they tend to, write, tend to write off the application of the sermon and say, oh man, Jesus gives us another impossible command. Let's talk about what he really meant and how that really applies. Well, at the end of the sermon, Jesus said, look, whoever hears these words and does them is like a wise person building his house on a solid firm foundation right on a rock yeah. so he obviously intended for us to do what he said we can't write it off like that but there's more than just doing what he said uh you can't just live i think i said this on sunday you can't just live this the kingdom life you need to know the king of the kingdom and that ties back to his resurrection so sure. anyway all of that to say um, the way I'm taking the Sermon on the Mount is more in line with the, the first couple hundred years of Christianity. Like this is, this is a discipleship manual. These are North Star guiding principles that you, you may never hit, but you keep going in that direction and that that growth in that direction is empowered by grace. Mm -hmm. I totally understand why that needed to be cut from your sermon. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> because though valuable, I think that we, it, it's like, I think it's perfect cut for time material, but in the sermon, it would have been like, what? <laughs> wait, wait, which one of those was wrong? What, what's going on? I don't uh, Yeah. Yep. At least in cut for time, we can pause and rewind for a second. I don't know. No, that's really helpful. And I appreciate that. So the, all those different ideas that you were going through, are those 
um, kind of part of the 19 frameworks you said this book outlined like oh, yeah. 19 yeah. positions that people come into reading like so of the 19 is one of them coming in with this idea of discipleship manual yeah yeah okay. that was one of the the first ones one of the earliest ones okay. of course borrowed from yeah. the early church so yeah yeah it, okay. it's what's interesting about the sermon on the mount is that it's almost a a litmus test or a shibboleth for how you view Jesus and the kingdom of God, the the assumptions you bring to the reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Like I, one I didn't even talk about. I grew up in a denomination that said the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus's law for how people needed to live in order to go to heaven while he was alive and on earth. And it was, it was a odd mix of kind of really splitting the church apart from Israel. But then what do you do when Jesus is here, but the church hasn't started yet, but he's fulfilled. Yeah, anyway, um, so in a classical dispensational um, framework. So again, yeah, there's there's a dozen more that I haven't talked about. Um, different ways of saying, well, who is Jesus? What's he trying to do? How does salvation work and all of that? And then trying to fit the sermon into that somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. I appreciate you going through that. Um, so this week, man, we have not had this happen very often. We always tell people they should submit their questions to us. And send your questions um, to podcast at faithliveitout.org. That's right. Yes, exactly. But we did get two questions this week, which is always fun. It's a good Ooh, surprise. Yes. Um, okay. And they were great questions. So let's talk about those. So first, um, this person said, um, can you just clarify, are you saying that the Sermon on the Mount is more of a disciples compilation of the greatest sermons? Um, you know, like, is it a greatest hits album or was it a full sermon summed up um, that summed up all of his teachings? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, the scholars are divided on really how to understand it. And, and there's not enough clues in the text for us to come down definitively on uh, this question. A, a couple of things to say. One is Matthew's genius in his telling of the story of Jesus is all in his structure. So if you think of it like, um, like uh, movies, if you read Mark, Mark is like a, uh, like an action movie. It is just boom, 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 boom. And things happen in order, like it's just gotta go, right? Uh, Luke is like a documentary. Uh, Luke is like a documentary, this happened and then this happened and here's this. And, and John is sort of like a art piece that is sort of meditative and, and wandering a little bit um, in really good ways. Uh, Matthew, his genius is in his structure. He, Matthew is like uh, watching a Christopher Nolan film, like watching Inception or Memento or Tenet or something where the genius is in the structure. It's layers on layers on layers. So Matthew, five times in his gospel, he presents big blocks of teaching. Now, in each of these cases, like in some of the other ones, it's easier to tell like, oh, like these probably didn't all happen at once. But in the Sermon on the Mount, because we have some clear narrative um, bookends to it, Jesus went up onto the mountain, Jesus came off of the mountain. It's harder to tell if that is a one specific event. So some scholars who fall on that ground, on that side of it say, yeah, this is one event, but it was probably spread out over a couple of days. Like these are little blocks of teaching with questions back and forth, spread out over days. You sort of got the, you've got Matthew's kind of notes on what Jesus said. Um, some of it is probably his exact words, especially the pithy sayings, the stuff that really, you know, sticks in your, in your head. Um, mm. Some of it is probably more of Matthew's summary of what Jesus said. So scholars talk about, do we have the very uh, voice of Jesus or the words of Jesus, right? Now, both 
come from Jesus, and it, it just is inspired one way or the other. But it, it may be, you know, Matthew has, you know, has heard Jesus preach a similar message 17 times, and so kind of knows the outline and the flow where Jesus goes with this and has created a, a version, sort of a uber version of the sermon in the way he's written it down. Um, that's totally acceptable and a fine way of looking at it, especially because uh, almost the entirety of the Old Testament was also uh, assembled and edited and refined and collected in a very similar way. Um, so Matthew's, like I said, his genius is in his structure. And, and we're going to see that um, even this week as we look at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who, and, and there's nine things there, in the exact same way that the Psalms start. Psalm 1, before the very collection, you know, the beginning of the collection of the whole Psalms. Uh, blessed is he who walks not in the way of sinners and doesn't, or walks not in the, stands in the seat, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it starts with that same, like, this is what, what flourishing looks like, right? This is what God-centered human flourishing looks like. So anyway, to give a shorter answer, we don't know if this is a compilation of greatest hits of, you know, 15, 20, a hundred times Jesus preached, brought into one thing, or if it was an extended preaching session over three days of teaching to his disciples, uh, mm -hmm. or if it was one specific sermon. My feeling, my thought on it is likely Matthew is being very faithful to the teachings of Jesus about the good news of the kingdom. And in his narrative, he has put all of that teaching into one place and one sermon to make it very clear for us what exactly Jesus was teaching when he meant, when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm -hmm. But any way you take it, it is still an authoritative discipleship manual sure. for us. Sure. Yep. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. And then the second question is... Um, just clarifying this idea of like Greek influence as well yeah. as the um, the Jewish influence. How does the Greek influence this teaching without becoming too much of the world? You know, like without having too much worldly influence. Yes, yes. Uh, that is that question is an age old question that. Christian theology and Christian philosophy have argued with for centuries. And I can't remember which early church father said, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? You know, what does Greek philosophy have to do with, uh, with Christian theology? Um, so it's, an, it's almost an eternal debate. But what's going on sociologically at the time, right? Uh, you've got the Jewish, uh, you've got Jewish culture that has, um, that, that has, created this tradition of wisdom literature, wise living literature. What does it mean to live within God's kingdom? Or what does it mean to live in anticipation of God's kingdom? Remember the big Jewish storyline is that God created heaven and earth together. Our own sin ripped heaven and earth apart. And the prayer is for heaven to come back to earth. For, for God to come back to earth and rule and reign and, and restore everything to an Eden-like state that it was intended to be in. Um, though Eden was only the beginning, it's intended to grow and flourish from there, but at least get us back to the start so that we can get back on track. Okay, so the, the wisdom literature uh, was very focused on how do you live now in anticipation of that future state in what ways can we anticipate that coming kingdom it, it's as if you 
for us say, um, you know, the weather forecast says it is going to rain. How do you live in anticipation of a thunderstorm coming? Well, you get your rain jacket and your rain boots and your umbrella out and you put them by the door because you know you're going to have to go out in that, right? You don't wait until the moment, um, but you anticipate ahead of time. Um, yeah. Or if you're like, you know, if you're like my daughter or probably your girls uh, at their age, um, they put on the rain boots and the jacket and the umbrella and they go stand outside in the sun waiting for the rain to start, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> They're anticipating the joy of stomping in puddles and running around in the rain. Uh, so mm -hmm. that, that's what wisdom literature is. It's, it's teaching how to live uh, in a way that is conducive to our own um, growth as human beings, the way God designed us to grow in that Eden-like state in communion with him. And we're doing this in small ways, trying to anticipate what it will be like in its fullness in the kingdom to come. So that's the Jewish tradition. Now, on the, the Greeks are also trying to answer the same question because everybody's trying to answer the same question. What is happiness? Sure. How do I get it? How do I sustain it? How do I maintain it? I, I don't want to let it go. How do I get it? Now, we yeah. use the word happiness. The Jews would use the word shalom um, or ashra, which we'll talk about this Sunday. Greeks would use the word, uh, the Greek word eudaimonia uh, or makarios. And these are words that um, have to, they're, they're, we sometimes translate them into English as happiness, but human flourishing is a better translation. Um, so think of it in terms of a garden. What kind of soil do I need to create so that the plant that is me, a human being, grows most vigorously, grows best? What sort of climate and conditions do I need to create? Uh, so that, that's the question of, uh, that the Greeks are asking. And a big part of what the Greeks are saying is that, that the way you need to grow as an individual um, is through an emphasis on virtue. Virtue is just the, the, a word that means excellence. So excellent performance of whatever it is that is unique to you as a thing. So the Greek tradition, the common illustration is a, a knife. You know, a good knife, a flourishing knife, a virtuous knife, an excellent knife is a knife that cuts well. So a blunt edge knife is not a good knife because it doesn't perform the unique function of a knife cutting. Same thing about a, a, a flautist. You know, a good flautist is, is someone who plays the flute well, right? Well, what is a good human being? And uh, Aristotle and the Greek virtue tradition has a, a distinct answer to that question. So what is a human being for? If you know what a human being is for, then you know what to do in order to be a good one. Sure. Uh, the Jewish wisdom tradition has a different answer to that question than the Greek virtue tradition does. The Jewish wisdom tradition says a human being is someone who lives their life as a creation of the creator God and lives in communion with him. So the, the Greek emphasis on slow growth and virtue over time, you could almost say that that sort of tradition was eaten up by the wisdom tradition and strengthened the body of the wisdom tradition from the inside in the same way that you and I eat food and it strengthens us, you know, strengthened us from the inside. We digested it, the, the Jewish wisdom tradition digested it. And in the culture at the time, which is a, you know, second temple Judaism, heavily influenced by the Greek context all around them, mm -hmm. um, is saying that they're expressing then Jewish ideas through Greek concepts and vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking it doesn't happen often that we talk about culture's influence in a positive way. And like yeah, you're yeah. saying, it was like, it was almost nourishment to strengthen this wisdom tradition. And I think that 
we're so quick to criticize culture for good reason often, um, you know, and we're all, we can just always rehearse or say the refrain mm-hmm. of like um, in the world, but not of the world. And right, you know, right. You know, but um, it is interesting to think about the benefits of uh, living in a certain time period or a certain culture. And oh, for sure, for also sure. just like not being like not hating on it so much and being like, Hey, this, we, it does have things to offer and it teaches us something new. And um, yeah, so it's a good perspective to have. Well, if you think of every individual as made in the image of God, um, then there are parts of that individual that are good, that are God oriented. Obviously there's total depravity. People are fallen, but if as cultures, as aggregates of human beings, every culture will have, elements to it that resonate with the gospel message because the individuals within that culture are the ones who create the culture are made in the image of God. And every culture will also have elements in it that do not resonate. that create dissonance with the gospel. Our culture does it. There's parts of us, yeah. you know, parts of our culture and every other culture. I was talking with a friend just yesterday who, who said something about having lived in Turkey for a number of years. He said, yeah, there were parts of Turkish culture that were very, um, dissonant with the gospel, but there were parts that were so resonant, the hospitality and the care for others as individuals to, in seeing in the other, you know, the seeing something of value in the other. So if you show up at someone's house, um, you're there for four or five hours because you're just greeted, you're welcomed, you're warmly received, you're all of that. He's like, that, that was like gospel hospitality in action, even though they had no idea that it wasn't driven by the gospel. It was driven by the image of God in us and in that culture. Sure. So yeah, there's always something you can learn. There's always yeah. something you need to be aware of in every sure. culture. Yeah. And I, it's good to think about um, both because I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that there's so much talk about how um, culture is doomed and the world is doomed and not the good things that it, we've experienced. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, of a, it's an inheritance from our um, sort of pre-mill, pre-trib uh, American um, evangelicalism and fundamentalism that says, hey, we're the remnant. We're the ones who are doing it right. Everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket. So uh, keep yourself pure and unstained from the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, Joey, okay, this is going to end up being just a little bit of a longer episode of Cover Time, which is totally fine because we're just giving people content that they're going to miss out on for the next few weeks because mm-hmm. um, we're actually going to take a break. So um, why don't you talk about where's this series headed? Um, what are yeah. some things that you and Jeff are praying that um, we learn through studying? You and the church, you know, we all learn together through studying the Sermon on the Mount. And then um, what is what can be expected in the summer and cut for time? And we'll talk about all that. Yes, sure, sure, sure. So. Yeah. So a lot of it I've already hinted at in the, well, not just the preaching last Sunday, but even some of this discussion, right? Uh, we want people to get that the Sermon on the Mount is wisdom literature. Um, it's like Proverbs. It's like Psalms. It's like Job. It, it, it's like Ecclesiastes. Like this is, uh, this is, um, admonitions and exhortations to wise living in righteousness for your own good and for God's glory. Okay. So it's wisdom literature. Um, it is, it is how to live wisely in light of the coming kingdom. So this is a, this is like Jesus's kingdom ethic. It's his foundational principles for living a kingdom life. So this is what those of us waiting for the kingdom to come, this is how we're supposed to live 
And so we need to apply Jesus's call here to the theme is kind of like greater righteousness, that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll explain what that means when we get, uh, when we get to it. Um, but it's a call to not just more righteousness, but greater, qualitatively better righteousness. That is a righteousness that is more than skin deep, that is whole person integrated. So uh, another way to put it is the goal in walking through this sermon is for us to bring integrity uh, or a reintegration of our desires and our behaviors um, through as we walk through this. And, and that's going to be easier in some areas. Uh, where the sermon has had a huge influence on our circumstances and our society, it's going to be more difficult in some areas. Um, when we get to the area of sexuality and what Jesus says about lust and divorce, we're actually going to take a couple extra weeks to sit in those passages because when Jesus says, hey, I have a, a goal for your life. I, I want you to experience true happiness or true flourishing. And it's, it comes this way, not the way you think it does. Like that is so offensive to us right now that we need to spend some extra time sitting there uh, thinking about that, talking about that. And um, we're going to meet again, right, for more cut for time in that time so that we can answer people's questions because it's going to, I'm sure, bring up a lot of questions. Yes. Yep. That's the plan. So we're going to take a break. Usually we take a break over the summer and it's a little earlier than usual, but we're going to take a break from cut for time now for the next few weeks. We'll resume. Um, what would that be? End of May, last week of May, beginning of June, I think. Um, when we, by the time we hit the um, sexual integrity focus. Um, and so then we'll resume cut for time um, and we'll let people know because we really want to use the podcast format as a, like an intentional way for people to submit questions and get answers. And so it will be less of cut for time, um, you know, what to do cut from the sermon and more time spent on Q&R. So people, we're going to really encourage people to submit their questions and um, get some clarity if they don't understand, you know, what we're what Jesus is teaching on, and honestly, it's going to bring up, I'm sure, a lot of tough questions. Yeah, um, yeah. because it's something that I could say many of us have been trying to wrestle with and figure out, um, over the last many years, probably of course a lifetime, but especially just with um, with our culture at this mm -hmm. time and period. So, um, it, we really want to be able to be make ourselves available and by ourselves i mean you and joe you and jeff not yeah. me, but i'll be able to facilitate um and uh, be able to kind of get you guys those questions ahead of time so you can prepare and um so yeah we'll resume for that and then we'll be right. off of cut for time again until fall okay all right well this was fun i'm so glad i got to say all the stuff that i had to cut out of the sermon because i was so pumped to share all of this history of interpretation and all of these things that only seminary nerds like me are really interested in. So I for think the four people that are still listening, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And it was totally worthwhile. And I'm glad that you were able to go through it. And I should probably put like a nerd alert uh, thing at the beginning of the cut for time, just in case. So people can like sure. bow out before they realize they're in too deep, but then they don't make it to the end or they get the updates and all these other things. So Maybe I won't warn them. Stick it out, people. It's worth it. All right. We'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks, Joey, for your time. I'm looking forward to this series. So, um, yeah. I'm super pumped. Beatitudes this Sunday. It's so great. Um, I'll just give you a hint. The word blessed 
when it says blessed are does not mean what you think it means cliffhanger thanks for listening to this week's episode of cut for time if you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our faith church texting number and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode if this conversation blessed you in any way we encourage you to share it with others thanks for listening we'll be back again next week